Shall we pray? Father God, as we look at your word together, just for a few minutes, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would be amongst us and that he would speak to us and that you would draw us, Lord, um, just into your wisdom this morning, Lord. But not just that, Lord, into an understanding of who we are in your sight, how you see us. And I pray you bless us, Lord, and the, and the thoughts we share now and the thoughts we think, in fact, as we hear what's shared. That your spirit would be over all of it, Lord, and you would bless us and you would speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll tell you a story. Um, it's one of these stories that may, make the rounds every now and again. Um, I think it may have made the rounds on the internet, so it's almost certainly um, true. Um, but it's a sad story. Um, a story of a young soldier. A soldier who um, was fought, fought in the war of Vietnam um, with his comrades. And, uh, and on his way home, um, he phoned his parents up. Um, they lived... A bit, uh, somewhere else in America, and he phoned him from San Francisco, and he said, Mum and Dad, I'm coming home, uh, and I've got a favour to ask. I've got a friend I'd like to bring with me. They said, yeah, sure, we'd love to meet him. There's something you should know, the son continued. He was hurt pretty badly in the fighting. He stepped on a landmine. He lost an arm, he lost a leg. He's got nowhere else to go. I'd like him to come live with us. They say, well, sorry to hear that, son, but perhaps we can find him somewhere to live. No. Mum and Dad, I want him to live with us. Son, said the father, you don't know what you're asking. Someone with such a handicap will be a terrible burden for us. We have our own lives to live and we can't let something like this interfere with our lives. I think you should just come home, forget about this guy. He'll find a way to live on his own. At that point, the son hung up the phone. The parents heard nothing more from him. However, a few days later, they received a call from the San Francisco police. Their son had died after falling from a building in an apparent suicide. The grief-stricken parents flew to San Francisco and were taken to the city morgue to identify the body of their son. And they recognized him, except they discovered something they didn't know, that their son had one arm and one leg. That story is a parable a modern-day parable, actually one that picks up on lots of different stories that I think people have heard. But it reminds us, doesn't it, the power of feeling loved and feeling unloved. It reminds us that love is a powerful emotion, and that's why death hurts so much, because we love people and we lose them. There is a real sadness this morning at the loss of Margaret, because we loved her, and we love her, and we miss her. And love is a very powerful emotion. Last week, Yulia, who came all the way from Novosibirsk, shared with us her own story of how she didn't feel loved when she was young, how she felt unloved by her father and her, her parents, and how it led her into drugs and all sorts of terrible things. That it was only when she discovered the love of God through Jesus Christ and the love of her church that her life changed around. If you remember that sermon, uh, that talk by Yulia, you will see the joy in her face. It made me want to learn Russian, um, because I thought maybe things come across better in Russian. I don't know. I won't try. Um, But love is a very powerful emotion, isn't it? In our modern world, we understand that we need to be loved. We understand that without love, we're lost, don't we? But the sad thing about 21st century life is that we often confuse love with all the wrong things. I've got a book at home that I read when I was about 12 years old called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. And they may as well keep producing it. Because often we confuse love with sex. We confuse love with lust. 
an intense passion between two people. We confuse it with uh, pleasure. We confuse love with all the wrong things. All too often the love that we experience and even give is conditional and short-lived. Let me tell you a story about a parrot. That's all right. (laughs) Did you not get the link immediately? There was a parrot. And uh, anyway, a woman bought a parrot from the shop. Obviously, don't get them from anywhere else, do you? And, uh, And she bought the parrot home, and she happened to buy a terrible, rude parrot. He would swear. He would call her names. He would say, you're ugly. I hate you, as she walked past. Every time she walked past a parrot, he would call her names. And she got so sick of this parrot that she said to him, if you don't stop it, I'm going to put you in the freezer. I don't recommend that. And so uh, the parrot didn't stop it because, you know, once a rude person, you can't really change your ways, can you, that easily? And so she shoved him in the uh, freezer, one of those ones, uh, for about three minutes. She felt a bit guilty, so she opened the freezer lid and the parrot (coughs) said to her, all right, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And she thought it worked. So she said, I forgive you. And then he said to her, I've got one question. She said, yeah, what is it? He said, what did the chicken do wrong? I'm just seeing where that fitted. Um, Never mind. But the point is, often our responses to each other are conditional, aren't they? I'll say sorry because I've been caught. I'll love you because you do all the right things. We live in a world where people are love-starved, aren't they? They know what it is. They've got millions of friends on Facebook and followers on Instagram or hits on YouTube or whatever the modern terminology is. Yet we feel lonely and we feel a lack of love in our lives. We're searching for this L word and we can't desperately and we don't seem to know where it is. Can you imagine what it would be like then to experience unconditional love? Can you imagine what it would be like to know someone who when they said they loved you, they just loved you until the day you died or the day they died? Another joke for you. Um, Ethel was married to Simon. No, hang on, that's a, a too young a name, isn't it? Um, what's an older name than Simon? Arthur. Arthur and Ethel, there we are, were married. Now Arthur was an alright husband, but he made a mistake. And, uh, and he did something pretty stupid and really offended his wife one day. And, and they rowed about it, she shouted at him. And she was really angry and hurt. And he said to her, look, Ethel... I'm sorry. And she said, it's all right, I forgive you. Now, her practice was to forgive and forget. Yet, Arthur, that was his name, wasn't it? Um, He realized that Ethel um, occasionally would bring this thing up that he did, even though she said she'd forgive and forget. And he said to her one day, Ethel, why do you keep bringing it up? I thought you forgave and forgot. And she said, Arthur, I do forgive and forget, but I want you to remember that I forgive and I forget. But wouldn't it be great to know love in your life that was 100%, regardless of your past, your present, your future, and your flaws? Well, today that love is possible. It is available and life-changing and can be found in God through faith in Jesus Christ. And today I'm going to look through very quickly the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. If you've got that open, that would be great. it's a bit long, we're a bit pushed for time, so I'm going to uh, just quickly tell you what happened, but if you've got it in front, we will refer to it. Luke chapter 15, um, the prodigal son, or the parable of the lost son you might have. And so Jesus is telling three parables, uh, stories that, that connect with the crowd, that have a spiritual meaning. And this story of the lost son is of, of a father with two sons. One son turns around and says, give me my money, I want it now, not after you've passed away, I want it now. So he gives it to him. And he goes off, spends it on women and booze and gambling. 
has nothing. Finally, all of his friends kind of evaporate. And he has absolutely no money in this other country. So he hires himself out to a farmer and he becomes a slave. He feeds pigs and he eats, almost eats, the food the pigs have in front of him. And he comes to his senses. He has a eureka moment and thinks, this is ridiculous. If I'm going to be a slave, I'll go home and be my dad's slave. So as he walks back, he's rehearsing his speech. I'm not worthy. I've sinned against God and you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a slave. He's rehearsing this thing over and over. As he walks home, his dad sees him and runs up the road, grabs him, and he can't even get the first word out. Dad, I've sinned. Forget it. And he puts a robe on him, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, cleans him up, takes him in. They have a giant celebration. There is another son who often gets ignored for some reason, and he's out in the field, and he hears all the commotion, and he says, what on earth's going on? And they say, oh, your brother's back. And he's like, what, him? He's back, is he? And they've killed the fattened calf for that kid. And he's really grumpy, and he refuses to go, and he's a right grumpy so-and-so. And the dad comes out and says, come on, come in. He says, oh, yeah, I've been good to you all these years. You've never given me anything. And the dad says, you've got everything of mine. Your brother was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. So we refer to that as we go through. So this is the story of the lost son as told by Jesus. Luke 15 has three parables in it. You've got the story of the lost coin and the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost good-for-nothing son. In all three of these stories uh, have the same theme. There's something that no one else would bother looking for that the father or the person in the parable feels is valuable enough to go looking for. And all three of them, they find this thing that's lost and then they have a big celebration at the end. The coin People would say there's no point looking for one coin, but the woman looks for it. Farmer loses one sheep whilst having 99 and goes looking for it. And the dad with this terrible son goes looking for him. And this morning, let me tell you, some of you here this morning are feeling insignificant. Let me tell you, some of you here this morning feel like you've got no value on this earth. Let me tell you, some of you this morning feel lost. And some of you feel lost and feel that you're not worth finding. Some of you here this morning feel like if you dropped off the side of the planet, no one should bother looking for you because you're not worth it. Well, let me tell you, Luke chapter 15 is God's message to you as much as it is to me. Because we've all been made by God. We're all in the image of the living God. We have a value because God made us. You have a value because God made you. And let me tell you this morning, you may feel lost, but God is looking for you. God is searching for you, desperate to bring you back, to restore you and shower you with his goodness and his love. And how do I know that? Because the very person that told this story in Luke 15 allowed himself to prove it by being nailed to a cross. Don't let anybody ever tell you you are rubbish when God's son was nailed to a cross to save you because God loved you. That thought went through my mind when I was 12 years old and I'm not sure I've ever looked back because if God loves me, then what can you say to me? Nothing. Because God's with me. Who can be against me? These three parables are all connected, like I say. They've all got the same message. The first two, the coin and the sheep, are quite short. But this last one, the parable of the lost son, is much longer and develops these themes. And it's all about lost things being found And this morning, God is finding us, looking for us. The way to understand this parable is to realize who Jesus is saying it to and why he's saying it. At the beginning of chapter 15, 
We read in the first two verses, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus told them this parable. So the reason Jesus tells this parable is because he's surrounded by a group of people. One half of them are at the bottom end of society. The society people says are not very good. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people people went, ugh, when they walked past. And then the other half are the religious elite, the Pharisees, the ones who walked with their heads held high, the ones who felt God was on their side. Not their side, our side, because we're religious. And we know God loves the religious first and most. Well... God isn't impressed with religion, actually. So don't think you can fool the living God. You can't. You see, Jesus was very popular at this stage. The tide is beginning to turn, but wherever Jesus went, loads of people would come out to hear, to see a miracle, to watch him do something, to watch him kind of go against the grain, attack the status quo. And he spent most of his time with those people that were spat on. And so I think these Pharisees were a little bit jealous. They've had their spiritual noses put out of joint. How comes he's not coming around to our house? Why is he spending his time with them? They're less than us. And actually, the reason Jesus tells this parable is because these Pharisees have a gospel of their own. But it's not a gospel of love, a gospel of grace, a gospel of forgiveness. They have a very ungracious view of God, despite their religiosity, despite their view of the Old Testament, and their being able to quote the Bible left, right, and center. Their gospel is one of God doesn't like you. And what this group over here heard all the time from this group was you're not good enough and God doesn't really like you. So in these three parables, Jesus Christ corrects a great wrong and he produces a rewriting of an ungracious God to the truth about what our God is. And by the way, Luke 15, if you get a chance to go home and read it, this story Jesus tells is amazing storytelling. Uh, None of us are very good storytellers. Jesus was a brilliant storyteller. If you'd have been a Jew in the first century hearing Jesus tell this story, you'd have been amazed at the way he told it. What he does really well is he takes um, how he he compares how bad these two sons are with how great the father is, and he does it really well. In verse 12, um, let's read that together. Verse 12, we read this. Now the younger one, the younger son, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. It's truly an awful thing to say. And what that crowd would have heard is a son saying to his dad, I wish that you were dead. I wish you were dead so I can have my money now and I want to go and have a laugh with it. I wish you were dead. Hurry up and die. And to a first century Jewish audience that have been shocked, how disrespectful to your dad. Verse 13, he then just turns around and walks off, no commitment, no integrity, he just leaves. How shocking in a society where parents are meant to be honoured above all things. He takes his father's money, verse 14, and we read these famous verses. Um, sorry, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, And he began to be in need. He spent it all and he had absolutely nothing left. But it's not just him. Jesus is taking the other son and comparing him to this loving father. What's the other son doing at the end of this parable? We read in verse 25. It says, meanwhile, the older son who was in the field, 
when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. One son leaves to another country. The other one is distant in a field, not with his dad either. His heart, whilst being at home, is ungracious towards his father's generosity. When he hears about the party going on, Verse 28, it says the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. He's like a toddler, I'm not going in. And so his father goes out and pleads with him. But he's ungracious and he's ungrateful as well. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, You killed a fattened calf. I wanted that. And he grumbles and he grumbles. So Jesus takes the worst of these two guys and then compares them with the best of this father. And the crowd would have got it. They would have got the scandal of a son wasting his dad's money and a grumpy, ungrateful son. They would have grasped what Jesus was talking about. But then the biggest shock would come as he describes the love of this father's response. You see, the father is gracious, he's patient, he's caring, he loves his two sons even though they don't deserve it. And that's the message, because that's what God is really like, Jesus is saying. He's saying, forget what this lot have told you, they're incorrect. God is not ungracious. That's what you've grown up with, that's wrong. God is love, and his love is amazing. And so what does Jesus tell them about this love of God? When he tells them very simply that God's love means that he seeks them when they're lost. In verse 20, what's amazing about this, verse 20 is truly brilliant. It says, while he was still a long way off, as he's walking back from this foreign country, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You see, the father is already waiting, already watching, already seeking his return. As the son wastes his money, as he has his tail between his legs, as he kind of shuffles home feeling guilty, the dad isn't sitting waiting to tell him off. He's waiting to welcome him. And I love it. I think that's brilliant. When we fall, when we fall, God isn't standing there with his arms crossed, tapping his feet, ready to tell us how much he doesn't like us. Quite the opposite. Even though he hates our sin, of course he does, God loves us despite it. He goes out to welcome this terrible boy home. But the older son too, in verse 28, I don't know if you picked up on that, this older son's out there grumbling, I'm not going in. What does the father do? Does he say, oh, get over yourself? That's what I'd probably say. I shouldn't admit that. I'd say, stop being so miserable, get over yourself and come in when you're ready. Um, He goes out and he pleads with him. And he says, look, I've given you everything. I love you. Even though he's an ungrateful, miserable so-and-so. I probably shouldn't say that either. I don't say that to my children. (laughs) But he goes out. God is not soft on sin. The wages of sin is death. There's a heaven, there's a hell. There is no two ways about it. You go to one or you go to the other if you reject Christ or welcome him into your heart. So sin is never soft in God's view. But with that clear judgment comes an amazing love. That God seeks the lost. He seeks to save the sinner. He sent his son to die on a cross so that we could be found. He goes seeking us. This morning, you may feel too lost to be found. Rubbish. Let me tell you the only way I know how. There ain't nowhere you can go where God won't get you. 
There ain't nowhere. Trust me. I've met people that have tried to go to dark places and God's there as well. There ain't nowhere you can go where God won't be. Second thing Jesus shows about God's love is that he loves us passionately. And what I love about this story is this younger son walks home. What does the dad do? He doesn't kind of, in a very dignified manner, walk up the road like this. No, he does something very undignified. And for a man of his age, presumably his sort of assumed age in that culture, to kind of lift up some of your clothes and run down the road to your son, who has basically stuck it to you, would have been horrendously scandalous. That's not what dignified men do. But he loves his son so passionately that he just runs down the road, doesn't care about social convention. And that's the, the, God, the love of God that we get to experience. It's passionate. Um, often the love we share with each other is very measured, very safe. Yet the love we experience from God the Father is passionate, it's energetic, it's amazing. It runs out to meet us, not caring what other people might think. I wonder when was the last time you loved someone like that? that you didn't care what people thought of you as you loved them. There are some amazing stories of Christians who have sat down with the worst in society, worst in society, and people have gone, Ugh, what are you doing that for? And they've said, I don't care, because God loves them, and God loves me, and I love them. I don't care what social convention might tell you. There's an intensity to the love of God for us, and it's really hard to get your head around. I struggle with it, because on the one hand, I, I, I know God is a God that will punish sin, and there's a heaven and a hell, and it's serious business, and I can't even walk into his presence with, on my own without Jesus, because I'd die. But then on the other hand, that same God chases me and searches for me, and I can't often reconcile the two until I come to the cross, that is when I see the wrath of God on Christ's shoulders and the mercy of God as I go free. Yet that is how God loves us. And then the third thing is that his love leads to restoration. Of course, at the end of this story, um, the dad has kind of smothered the son. He's barely got a word out of his speech and he puts a robe on him. He puts a ring on his fingers and shoes on his feet. And just imagine what this son would have looked like. Um, I don't want to gross anybody out. Um, But he's been living on a pig farm for a while so he wouldn't have been coming in his Sunday best to meet his dad he'd have probably had wine stains down him probably sick he's probably thrown up a few times he's probably got pig food on him and probably even pig feces you imagine that would you give somebody a cuddle covered in that sort of stuff maybe you might think twice but the dad does not care he just grabs his son and what does he do he takes that robe of sin off And he puts a new one on. The Bible is very clear. Revelation um, 7, um, verse 9 and verse 13 talk to us about um, when we come to follow Jesus Christ. This is a vision of heaven. It says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And a bit later on, he asks the question, who are they? But the point is that when you become a Christian, we're told that the old has gone, the new has come. And just like this son, when you find Jesus, that dirty bit, that all the stains of the past, the father takes off. And he puts a brand new robe on that is pure and clean. He restores his son by taking off what symbolized his sin and putting on what symbolized his restoration. When you became a Christian, Christ gave you his righteousness and he took your sin and died on the cross in your place it is the most amazing transformation 
The love of God leads to restoration and being made clean. And what about this ring that was on his finger? What did that mean? Well, he thinks he's only worthy to be a slave. Make me a slave. I'll clean your pigs rather than some other guys. But as he puts the ring on his finger, what's the father actually doing? He's restoring him to the place of sonship. He's saying, yeah, no, 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 I love you. You're not going to be my slave. You're going to be my son. Romans 8 verse 15 says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And Galatians 4 verses 4 to 7 says, but, but when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your, our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child of God. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. He becomes an heir to that estate again, even though he's wasted it. He's been made a son. The shoes as well, he would have arrived barefoot. The only people that were barefoot in that culture were slaves or the very poor. So from head to toe, he is completely restored. And that's why at the very end, the the, the father will say to the older son, this brother of yours was dead, but he is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. And could you imagine the crowd hearing this story? This crowd over here, not this crowd. This crowd who have been told that they are rubbish and worthless and heard the gospel of God doesn't like you since the day they were born until the day they heard this story. Can you imagine what this would have done to them to be told God doesn't think you're worthless. God doesn't think you're rubbish. Actually, God does like you. And more than that, he loves you and he wants to bring you home and restore you and bless you and shower you with his goodness. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to have heard for the very first time? One of the biggest dangers to Christianity is familiarity. Let me tell you that. This morning, some of you will probably already have known most of what I was going to say. The danger is you lose the importance of it. If you've been told your whole life you're rubbish, and then God's son comes and says, God, my father is chasing after you to restore you. That is the best thing you could ever ever here so how should I finish some lengthy theological discourse on the words in Greek and Hebrew of love something historical a quote from somebody well known how should I finish let me just say this God loves you no I mean he really loves you For those of you here this morning who have done terrible things, God loves you. For those of you here this morning who have made the most horrendous choices that you feel bad about every day, God loves you. For those of you who feel that they're covered in pig feces, God loves you. For those of you in the process of telling God you wish he was dead, because you want to go your own way. God loves you. For those of you that have spent your whole life with people telling you you're worthless, they're wrong. Because God loves you. 
In fact, he loved you before you were even thought of, before one negative word robbed you of your self-worth. Despite our flaws, regardless of our choices, even with our dirt, God loves you. This morning, those of us without the love of an earthly father, God loves us. God the Father loves us this Father's Day. The devil whispers into our fragile hearts, God can't love you. Not now. Not after you did it again. Rubbish. God loves you. And I'll show you how much. For the grumpy and the ungracious, for the lovers of money and prestige, for the lowly and the humble, the ignored and the sidelines, God loves you. Let's just take a moment, actually, before we pray. And just hear that phrase and hide it in your heart. God loves you. In fact, why don't you say it in your heart a couple of times, quietly to yourself, God loves me. And dare to believe it. Just take a moment. Father God, this Father's Day, we know that so many people feel unloved, feel let down, feel abandoned. Maybe they feel like they've done some abandoning themselves and they've made terrible mistakes and are not worthy, Lord, of your love and your grace. Lord, you don't love us because of anything we've done. We're not worthy of it anyway. Lord, even the best of us aren't worthy of your love. That's quite clear from the Bible. Lord, you love us because it is in your very nature to love the unlovable. And Lord, I love the fact that in this story you show grace, not just to the rebellious son who repents and comes home. Lord, you show love to the son who doesn't and who's just as grumpy at the beginning as he is at the end. Lord, you love us whatever state we're in. And I thank you, Lord, so much for that. And may we dare to believe this week and dare to say to the devil when he whispers, God doesn't love you, to actually say, be gone in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't you tell me God doesn't love me. I can see the cross. Father, we bless your name this morning. Amen.